0: Hey, by the way, I I should probably introduce myself. I am Dave Denzer. I haven't been up here to preach for a while, so I thought I'd do that. Um, Actually, last several weeks, I've been introducing a couple of guest preachers and Scott in his first sermon, Um, but uh, it's actually been Easter was the last time that I preached, which uh, Easter sounds, to me, it sounds like a long time ago, doesn't it? I mean, it really sounds like a long time ago, although it's been a long spring, So, or has it been spring? I'm not sure uh, exactly on that. But do you remember Easter Sunday? I mean, you know, wow, what a celebration, huh? As we relive this living Jesus, and we say things like, he's risen, he's risen indeed. And then we go on, and uh, everything kind of stays the same as it was before. You know, our alarms go off, we... uh, Uh, We we watch the same TV programs. We uh, normally spend our money and our time in the exact same way as we did before. Life goes on, and it needs to go on, but maybe not on the same trajectory that it was going on before, before we knew that Jesus was alive. Jesus came into this world for a reason. He died for a reason. He was raised for a reason. And the reason is simple. The reason is you. But Christians have long had a challenging time trying to figure out how to live life in light of a risen Jesus. Take the Corinthians, for example. We heard that lesson that was read earlier today. uh, That was from the book of 1 Corinthians. It was written to these living people in the city of Corinth. That is in the Greek peninsula. And there, these people were people who, like us, had to try to figure out, how do I live life on this side of a living Jesus? Well, Paul talked about it, and he described how they were doing and what they were doing in light of the risen Jesus. He says this in 1 Corinthians 5, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that does not occur even among pagans a man has his father's wife, and you are proud? Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? Now when I read this, I think to myself, surely there must be a mistake here. Surely Paul must have received, you know, some exaggerated kind of a report, and he's responding to that exaggerated report. But in, in reality, what Paul is describing here is really consistent with what he's saying in the rest of the book of 1 Corinthians, because it appears as though there was a faction operating in the city of Corinth that was misleading the Corinthian church. This faction understood that the meaning of Jesus' resurrection was to bring you freedom. And it does bring you freedom, but their version of freedom was a little bit different. They believed that it was freedom to live worse than any pagan, freedom to sin, freedom to live any way they desired, free to quarrel, free to covet, free to grab anything that their selfish little hearts desire. And Jesus was raised for this? Paul called what was happening there sexual immorality, and the Greek word that is used Uh, that is translated as sexual immorality is the word pornea. From that word, we get words such as pornography. And when we look back on that society of Paul's day and the Corinthians' day, we look back on a society that, yeah, had a lot of pornea going on in it. And yet in that society, even those people believed that what the Corinthian church was doing was something that was wrong but they were apparently feeling free to go ahead and do even what they thought was wrong. Now, Paul doesn't reveal a whole lot about this situation because he's writing to people who already know about the situation. So we need to, therefore, kind of put some of the pieces together. When he describes the woman as his father's wife, what we can conclude from that, really, is that this really is his stepmother that we're referring to. The relationship is apparently ongoing because he uses the word is. There is, present tense, ongoing, sexual immorality among you. And then from there, it's all guesswork. We don't really know much about the situation. Was the man's father still alive? Was he dead? Did the man actually marry this woman? Or is it simply an ongoing affair between the two of them? Whatever it is, it sounds like a gross violation Of God's law a gross departure of God's expressed desire for his people yet the only thing worse for Paul than the act itself is the response of the Corinthian church and you are proud he said shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this this is serious stuff Most of all, because this event and the Corinthians' response to it reveals the heart of the Corinthian church. They were proud of their newfound tolerance in Jesus. The man's behavior was something that they celebrated to demonstrate their new freedom in Christ. As though they're saying, Look what we can do and get away with it. Aren't we the most enlightened people around? But wait a minute. Christ died for this? Christ was raised for this? To cut the Corinthians some slack here, they were new Christians they were new believers and they didn't have a whole lot to go on. They had Paul and his his team that came in. What they would do is they would come in and, and Paul would share the good news of Jesus with the people that are there. Some people would respond and they would come to faith in Jesus and they would shape this group of people into a church. And then Paul would uh, leave them with somebody from his entourage behind to organize the church and to continue to teach them for a while and things like that. Raise up a pastor and elders and and uh, then leave them there, and uh, you know, there's still brand new Christians that are left there. And then they have these stories of Jesus that are told to them. Stories that are s- like, for example, the story that we heard a little while ago from Luke chapter 5, when Jesus called Levi the tax collector, or we know this man as Matthew the tax collector. And then they're sitting there eating and drinking at this tax collector's table, something which the you know, Pharisees were really ticked off about. They weren't happy about this. So they asked in Luke chapter 5, verse 30, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? I mean, it's not just a question, it's an, ac- it's an accusation. It made no sense to them. They seem to be really in agreement with Paul. They seem to be kind of on the same page here when they are looking at this and saying, hey, don't even associate with scum such as this. Well, verse 31, Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So bug off, Pharisees. But what do we do with this? We've seemed to have two competing teachings here going on. Where we have Paul over here uh, describing how uh, this... This person in the Corinthian church should even be put out of the church because of what he's doing, and over here we have Jesus sitting at the table of a tax collector and a sinner, and it seems to be competing, so how in the world do we reconcile these two things here? It seems like Paul even might be lapsing into his latent pharisaical roots and siding over here with the Pharisees, but hold the phone, there is more here. There's some parallels between these two stories that are really kind of cool when we put them together. It becomes clear when the people in that story from Luke pressed Jesus even further with something that they're finally getting off their chest. You can can just hear the relief. It's like, oh, for crying out loud, Jesus, let's just ask you. The disciples of John, they said, often fast and offer prayers. The disciples of the Pharisees also do the same. But yours, eat and drink, which they're doing right now, by the way, because they're sitting at Matthew's table. Now, fasting was an important part of Jewish piety, you know, how they would practice their faith. The Pharisees, get this, fasted twice a week. Twice a week. 52 weeks out of the year. And everybody was considered to uh, have to fast at certain religious festivals. Everyone who was a faithful, pious Jew was considered to have to do that. And they all considered fasting to be an important part of worshiping God. It was part of seeking God out. So when they're asking this question, what they're saying is, you seem godless. You don't even seem to want to seek God. But their question and Jesus' response, we can put in kind of a different kind of a context to understand what it is that they're saying. Imagine with me for a second here today that you are on a deserted island, okay? And somehow this voice comes, maybe it's somebody else, maybe it's a narrator, I don't know. You know, you're, you're there and the voice comes and says, why aren't you signaling for a, a rescue ship? Why aren't you doing that? Do you not want to find a rescue ship? To which you reply, but hey, wait a minute, don't you see the lifeboat is already here? Why signal for a rescue ship when the lifeboat is already here? Now if the lifeboat leaves without me, of course I'm going to signal for a rescue ship, but the, I don't have to do it right now because it's right here. It's not that fasting is bad or wrong. It's that Jesus, the lifeboat, is right here. So now is the time to get in and to celebrate your deliverance. Well, Jesus tried to explain a little bit more about what this is all about by using this kind of an illustration in verse 37. He said, "...no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled out and the skins will be ruined." But new wine must be put into, into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, wishes for new. For he says, the old is good enough. Oh boy. The tyranny of the good enough. It affects a lot of areas of life. It affects relationships. It affects organizations. This tyranny of the good enough. If we were just to take organizations, for example and do a little research here. Go back to 1955, the year 1955, and look up the Fortune 500 companies that are listed in 1955. You'll see that 88% of those Fortune 500 companies from 1955 are no longer around or at least not on the Fortune 500. They've either gone bankrupt, merged, or dropped down in their productivity, so that they are not part of the Fortune 500. How about this one? Anybody remember Blockbuster Video? Okay, remember Blockbuster? Okay, it seemed like Blockbuster was on every corner, and if there was a mom-and-pop video store out there, man, they didn't stand a chance, because Blockbuster would just run them into the ground. If you wanted to get a video, where would you go? You'd go to Blockbuster, is basically what it amounted to. They were a success, a tremendous success. It seemed as though there was just no limit to what they could do. There's another little company that was operating at the exact same time as Blockbuster by the name of Netflix. Netflix approached Blockbuster about buying them out and Blockbuster said, no, I don't think we're going to do that because we are good enough. They rested on their laurels, they rested on their success. Now, Block- Netflix rather, they had a business model that was not going to last. And it was the model, if you remember this, they used to send out DVDs to people in their homes, right? And uh, that didn't last. (laughs) Um, But there's a difference here between Blockbuster and Netflix today, if we look at that. Try finding a Blockbuster out there these days, okay? They did not change, they did not adapt, they didn't do anything to try to uh, survive, really, because they figured that they were good enough. Netflix, on the other hand, they adapted, they changed, they modified, and they are now one of the hottest companies out there. As a matter of fact, the other day I looked up the price per share of Blockbuster stock. And on Wednesday, anyway, when I looked this up, it was three, selling for $305 per share on NASDAQ. I mean, had had uh, Blockbuster actually taken them up on their offer, I don't know, maybe they would have absorbed them into the, you know, the great world of the good enough and neither one would be around anymore. Or perhaps one would have influenced the other and they would both be around. But I'll tell you what, the Pharisees are a lot like Blockbuster. They considered themselves good enough. They didn't need fundamental change. They enjoyed the praise and the respect of the people. They, people looked at them with honor and and uh, looked up to them, they were a success. They considered themselves to be good enough. They just needed to follow a little rule here, a little rule there, and yes, indeed, they were good enough because they were the ones who defined what good enough even was. The Corinthians might have considered themselves to be totally different, 180 degrees separated from the Pharisees, and yet they were more like the Pharisees than they realized because like the Pharisees, they they too were like Blockbuster. They considered themselves to be good enough. What they did really didn't matter in their eyes. If it was right in their own eyes, they could do it. They, they really were the judge and the jury as to what the standard would be for what would be considered to be good enough. They didn't have to act any better than their basest sinful nature motiva- motivated them to act. They could live any way they wanted, even worse than they would have acted before they met Jesus. After all, didn't God have to accept them no matter what? Therefore, they considered themselves free to do anything, anything even if it's destructive, anything their hearts desired. There's no change needed, no change wanted. They were both, the Pharisees and the Corinthians, both in their own ways self-righteous, good enough. For the self-righteous are always, always good enough in their own eyes, as was Blockbuster. Now yesterday morning when York Moore was here and he was up here uh, teaching us about how to share our faith, one thing that he brought up was something that I'd long considered and and, uh, certainly rang true was was this, that these days, if you look around, uh, people have kind of set a standard about what is good enough to be able to get into heaven. And the standard is this, if I'm not an axe murderer, I'm good enough to get into heaven. Okay, the the bar is set pretty low here, all right, because thankfully there's not a whole lot of axe murderers walking around. Therefore, you know, pretty much everybody is good enough to get into heaven, which means that pretty much everybody does not need Jesus, because they're already good enough. They already got a lifeboat. They don't need one from Jesus. They are already good enough. Well, I ran into a version of this back when I was uh, doing my pastoral internship in Minneapolis. It was kind of a rough area. I was talking with a woman about heaven, and she said, well, you know, I think, I think I, I'm, I'm going to get into heaven because after all, I'm, I'm good enough. I mean, I, I haven't killed anybody lately. And I, well, Lately? <laughs> uh, rough area, rough part of town. But Jesus was trying to explain this to us. I'm trying to explain that the good enough is always the enemy of change, especially fundamental change, personal change, business model change. And that was the kind of change that Jesus was talking about when he was using this example of the wine and the wineskins. This weird kind of sounding thing, it's kind of the kind of thing that when you're reading it in Scripture, it's kind of like, huh? Okay, I think I need to flip the page or keep going because that was just kind of weird. But let's take a look at it this way. My wife and I are actually in uh, pretty radical change right now because we are downsizing in our house. We are moving. At the end of this week, as a matter of fact, we are moving and therefore, we are unpacking all kinds of stuff that has uh, been there forever. I think that we're unpacking some boxes that's got stuff in it from probably the Nixon administration. I mean, it's, it's been there forever. And one of those things uh, is this little baby right here. Now, my wife tells me that I save everything. I suppose this is probably proof that she's right. Um, and this, this is, this is uh, it kind of looks like a wineskin, doesn't it? Okay, that's why I brought it in today, so it's good. You're supposed to say yes to that because uh, that's what I'm hoping for. But it's actually a water bottle that uh, I would use for, like for hiking and things like that when I was in high school. No, I didn't walk around with wine in one of these things when I was in high school. But it kind of looks like a wineskin, okay? So we'll use it, we'll use it as a wineskin here. And, and here's the thing is that wine, especially red wine, when, when it ferments... And we're talking about, he says, new wine, new wineskins. So new wine means that it doesn't, has not been fermenting very long, so it's got some fermenting to do. When red wine ferments, it expands. Okay? So they would store it in things like this. If you would put it in a bottle, red wine expands when it ferments, it could actually overflow the top of the bottle by doing that. In wineskins, what it does is it causes the, the skin to swell. It pushes it out. And thankfully, you know, a new wineskin is something that's pliable. It's moldable, all right? So it can expand. An old wineskin is something that is brittle. It's already been expanded. It's already in the shape of the wine that was in it previously. So you try to put new wine into it, filling it up to the capacity of it, and now that new wine expands, it's going to burst. It's it's not going to be good for anything. It's not going to work, okay? So Jesus is saying this to say that he is... The new wine. And when you fill up on Jesus, something happens. Jesus enters your life and it begins to shape you, it begins to mold you, begins to cause you to, you know, take on the shape of that which is within. And the problem for the Corinthians is that they wanted to take this new wine of Jesus and put it into old wineskins that were shaped and formed by the wine of this world. And it doesn't work. Instead, new wineskins for new wine, Wine wineskins that are pliable, moldable, that can take on the shape of Jesus. But how do you do what the Corinthians are trying to do? without winding up where the Corinthians wound up, which is a place of disaster. New wine for new wineskins. Now, there are two things missing in Corinth, and they are these. Number one, a new life, a transformed life, a new creation. They didn't want that. They just wanted the trappings of Jesus. Jesus. They didn't want to go through all this change kind of stuff because they were good enough, remember? They were ruled by the good enough. But Jesus said you cannot have two masters. If you're ruled by the good enough, you're not going to be ruled by Jesus. If you're shaped by the wine of this world, you're not going to be shaped by the new wine of Jesus. But if you're you're ruled by Jesus and if you are shaped by Jesus, then you will not be ruled by the good enough. Because you're going to realize that he's the one who's good enough. And you don't have to be. So here's the thing. Turn back to Jesus. Recognize an old wineskin when you see it. Resolve to be a new wineskin. And you don't have to be a new wineskin in order to come to Jesus. Because this is the cool thing. The wine shapes the skin. All right? You come as you are. He shapes you and molds you into his image. Be a new wineskin for new wine.